Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. So, yeah, so let's go. So, um, I'm here today with DJ Woody, and I'm just looking through his press release one sheet, which just reminds me of all the insane things he's done. Um, and being one of Mixed Master Mike's favourite DJs is pretty much all you need to know in terms of my world. So I'm going to try not to get a bit too obsessed with when I first saw your footage and things like that and asking weird questions from 20 years ago that it's insignificant to you, but to me it's like some massive thing. Um, so um, Lee Woodvine, aka DJ Woody, um, thanks for coming on today and how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Absolute pleasure. Uh, I've been really enjoying listening to the, the uh, previous episodes of this. So, uh, yeah, it's nice to sit down and have a chat. Brilliant. Appreciate that. So let's kick it off then, as per usual, with how did you get into DJing? Um, basically through uh, the explosion of hip-hop and finally figuring out what my calling within that was. You know, um, I was, I'd say, the second generation of sort of UK hip hop, but I was around when it first kind of exploded. So um, I call it sort of older brother syndrome, where you know you've got an older brother and you get exposed to maybe certain things that um, people in your immediate peer group don't necessarily get exposed to. But I was lucky enough that living in the area that I did within Burnley and the school that I went to, there was a few people who were wicked at breaking in my area i saw graffiti pretty much as soon as it came to the uk on the on the walls you know and yeah i just it was super exciting time sort of mid mid 80s I, i'd have been like what eight seven eight in 84 85 so was it in burnley particularly early by the standards of the uk then do you mean no i'd, I'd say i'd say it was it hit the uk just like BMX hit the UK, just like skateboarding at various times hit the UK. It was a youth phenomenon, you know what I mean? Like Malcolm yeah. McLaren and every, everything that came over, um, it was imported at the same sort of time. But um, yeah, the particular area that I grew up, uh, there was some activity there, you know. So um, there were two schools in my area where I grew up and it was the other school that a lot of the breakers went to and then it must have been about 1985 or something like that their roof fell in <laughs> and uh and we ended up get getting a bunch of their pupils like they were scattered among the other primary schools in in burnley and um and we got a few and a couple of them just happened to be like the nastiest uh 
little young b-boys going in the area so uh yeah got exposed to all that at school disco and uh yeah just all massively exciting and luckily my older brother's best mate or one of his best mates was the guy who could do a windmill the guy who could you know do nice floats and had all the tapes that you could tape to tape and uh yeah you just kind of get exposed to it next thing you know you nicking vw badges off uh, the front of cars and you know. god your school discos sound a lot better than mine we used to just dr- dress up as michael jackson and drink calippos oh well there, there was that as well but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> bit shaking stevens but uh yeah no it's uh yeah so the obsession started in the 80s as a kid tried my hand at rapping uh but i think i'm uh yeah way too shy for that business had a little group yeah. i made my mate who was into heavy metal memorize a whole bunch of run dmc lyrics and we used to go around the yard doing that and then we started a, a little group called the psychic boys i remember going down to his house with a micasio keyboard and writing raps to that when i must must have been about eight or something that's uh, not a bad name for an eight-year-old's rap group to be fair the psychic but well there's a long story that you honestly don't want to hear where i was convinced <laughs> i was psychic uh when i was that <laughs> that age like for real and i'm still kind of freaked out by this story but uh yeah uh so that's where that came from but it was literally went down his house had a had a blank pad and a pen and at that point i'd never heard an english person rap you know it was before i discovered any uk rap so i'm literally thinking now what does a white lad from burnley rap about you know what i mean and uh yeah and i don't know yeah just formative experience you know trying to make beats off uh tape to tapes and stuff and all that jazz that everybody else ended up doing in the 80s so from there then were you quite early getting decks fairly um so yeah a lot of it was sort of uh monetarily led you know um yeah i literally couldn't get the money together for decks until i kind of got a part-time job when i was a teenager and then like a, a birthday and a Christmas combined. I got, uh, yeah, I got decks for Christmas when I was 15. A uh, pair of belt drives, cheap, cheapest ones you can find, sort of all in, sort of set at the back of uh, DJ Mag. And uh, yeah, away we went. And I think it took another year to save up for one Technics, another year to save up for another Technics, and uh, another year to save up for a good mixer. But uh, got there in the end. So, how long had you been kind of thirsting for decks? Um, uh, from from the late 80s really um i was buying a lot of the def jam sevens all that sort of run dmc public enemy ll cool j eric b and rakim it was all available cheap as chips at woolies do you know what i mean it was like yeah. a couple of quid so um you know sort of limited funds again you know i got the albums on cassette and i got as many singles as i could on on seven inch so um i used to mess around on my little midi hi-fi at home we sort of makeshift paper slip mats and uh do little routines with beats to the rhyme which is basically a scratch record anyway with all the samples on it um so yeah i was, I was faffing about ruining records from uh yeah sort of i don't know 86 87 88 but uh yeah to actually finally get decks it was like end of 92 so were you thinking about how because obviously with beat juggling um i think a lot of beat juggling it's you've got to think in a certain way with it it's almost like you've got to think spatially about music so when you were looking about like that and doing 
doing sort of pause tapes and, and that type of thing, do you, were you thinking a lot about how music, like deconstructing it? Yeah, trying to, because I mean, although my mum sort of mainly listened to Motown records and stuff like that, being of her generation up north, um, I was pretty ignorant to a lot of the sample sources um, until sort of after after really trying to deconstruct sort of Public Enemy records, you know, you, uh. you're sort of, um, you're listening to these records, obviously Public Enemy in particular was so dense with samples, I didn't realise how much of a record they were taking, are, are they just taking that tiny little horn stab or is the bass and the horn linked or, you know, so, so it was a revelation when I started hearing the original sources, you know, a couple of years later or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just that sort of DIY thing, isn't it? You know, it, you're trying to imagine what's going on because obviously there's nobody explaining it to you. Although I had my old brother who, who was also into rap and stuff and, and his mate who was into hip hop. I didn't know anybody who was actively trying to do hip hop really, apart from when people were trying to break and stuff. But I was kind of when people started veering away from it, we all started skateboarding at the same time as well. And uh, slowly, a lot of people who I got into it with were sort of less interested. I was still kind of like, ah, oh, well, I'm still writing these little raps that nobody knows about and I really want a set of decks. And, you know, um, it still had my full attention. So when you got your decks then, what was the kind of developmental curve like? Were you, did you just pick everything up quite quickly because of how you'd been thinking about it? Or was it, you know, how, how hard was that learning? Um, obviously, this is all pre any any kind of uh, instructional videos or yeah. any of that business. So it was literally listening to the records that you like the scratching on. Um, there might be the odd thing that I'd taped off TV that had a tiny bit of DJing in you know, a public enemy concert with Terminator X in the background or a run DMC video where Jam Master Jace, you know, is doing something, um, literally just picking it up where you could. Um, I was quite fortunate in the fact that when my brother went to college, um, he the first thing he said to me when he came back from his first day is, You'll never believe this, Lee, but uh, there's a lad in my class who's exactly the same as you. And he brought home this folder. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And uh, he showed me this folder. And uh, each person in the class had to write stuff about themselves. So it's like, what yeah. are you into? Who's your most um, influential person? And this guy was like, you know, hip-hop and rap. Um, most influential, Chuck D., you know, and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to meet this guy. Uh, this is after everybody had kind of sort of left hip hop, you know. Yeah. And he's like, and he's a DJ, you know. And uh, I'm like, what? So pretty soon after, we we sort of took a bus up to his little village and uh, got there. And it was like, I could, couldn't believe my luck. Do you know what I mean? It was like, went up to his attic and it was like, hip, you know, it was just wall-to-wall hip hop, you know, sort of... Uh, and he was into exactly the same sort of rap as me. Like by this point, I'd fully immersed myself in hardcore UK hip hop, you know, your hard noise, sort of noise blade, you know, yeah. MC Mellow and all this lot. So it was it was like a niche within a niche, you know, hip hop wasn't wasn't big then and we were into the, the grimiest, most underground stuff going, you know. And we just happened to live down the road from each other. So from that point it was like um 
automatic crew, you know, like we were yeah. literally the only people in the area into the same thing, doing the same thing with the same sort of vision, you know. So developmentally, yeah, it was a case of getting up to that attic as often as I could, you know. So I'm talking about a guy called Chris Hargreaves who went under the name Mr. Tickle. He is two years older than me, uh, but he also had a mentor, sort of friend, uh, Rick Alton, who went under Filthy Rich, uh, who was a, a few years older than him. So Rich was original, original sort of, you know, hip hop generation. You know, he he was like five or six years older than me. And he like he was like Barn Oldswick's Mixmaster Mike, sort of proper left field creative on the decks, doing moves you wouldn't even think of trying. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just learning from jamming with those guys, really. Um, I would ask for tips on stuff, but to be honest with you, and he, he wasn't being selfish at all, like in the way he put it, um, but he was like, you know, just sort of experiment, you know, and figure figure your own style out. And um, that's the way it went, you know, and we all ended up having completely different styles. You know, we'd all figured scratches out in our own sort of by our own steam and did them in a different way which gave them a different sound i think that for me what i like about people like you mix master mark kid koala there's others i think you you guys all look at the turntable in a very different way to most of us um so that's cool that it came through that sort of route because it's a you know it's a really unique talent and gift. I think some of some of the individuality comes from kind of not necessarily an outsider mentality, but not necessarily being surrounded by peers and um, immersed in. You're in your own little bubble, you know. Uh, you are, get, I guess, part of a wider scene, but there's nothing like the internet to. Um, sort of have any grasp on that do you know what I mean you, you, you're you just developing your skills within this art form you love and and it was so kind of open for inter- interpretation at that point you know you're talking about what we're talking we're talking early 90s yeah um, early to mid 90s this kind of developmental time and uh, you know it's when yeah the Rocksteady crew DJs are first sort of dropping on the scene you know you're first seeing the Scratch Pickles do things with multiple DJs and multiple decks creating bands and you know we were all heavily heavily influenced off uh, DJ Supreme and the UK DJs yeah and but as well Mixmaster Mike and well every everything we could get hold of you know Space Travelers DJ Quest all, all these guys um, all these tapes all these bits of videos turntable t- TV that was coming through we we were like that's that's just us but we're in Burnley and Barn Oldswick do you know what I mean that's like yeah. that's what we're doing how easy was it to get hold of that stuff? It was fine. I mean, um, Burnley's 25 miles from Manchester. Um, all of my youth, the bus fare was like a quid or a quid 99. So I, whether I was going over to skate there every Saturday with all the skaters, bobbing in the record shops as well. Um, I, yeah, from the age of, say, 13, 12, 13. I can't believe my parents let me do it, but like I was over there on a bus, you know. Uh, in the record shops in Manchester, in the skate shops. Without wanting to sound 600 years old then, I do think it was a bit different back then. The, the amount of freedom that kids are afforded now is it's just totally different. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a 14-year-old daughter now and there's no 
no chance she's going to Manchester on her own. Yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong, you know, I got in some skirmishes, you know, I've had people try and mug me with a knife when I was 13 and, you know, you're sort of getting chased by security guards on your skateboards around Manchester or whatever. Um, yeah, I wouldn't kind of, I'd hate to th- sort of imagine uh, my kids having those experiences. Yeah, I think that's just part of parenting, isn't it? Um, so when did you become aware of battling and think, I want to pursue this? So I think my first battle video that I got was, was it 89 when uh, Swifty won it? Um, that was the first uh, 89 DMC World. That was the first video I got my hands on. Probably cost me about 30 quid from Basement DJ Supplies in uh, Manchester. Yeah. Obviously, I was aware of battling before then, but it was just kind of pictures in Hip Hop Connection or, you know, like whatever what, whatever you'd heard. But, um, yeah, absolutely loved it. I mean, I just thought culturally, you know, I thought, yeah, well, that's what I do. I'm, I want to be a Hip Hop Scratch DJ. At some point, I'm going to battle. But I, I wanted to do all of it. One thing I didn't mention, it was probably largely... Jam Master J, the reason I wanted to get on turntables and yeah. do this thing. And a large part of that was to be the DJ in a rap group, to perform as the DJ in a rap group. But I loved all aspects of it. So I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to DJ in a club and mix it up. I, I wanted to do scratches on a, on a rap record. I, and then when more musical kind of endeavors were coming out, you know, I wanted to sort of do that kind of thing. So what order did it come? Did you start DJing out first or did you start doing sort of battle routines? I hid away and practiced for the first couple of years. And then I, I was really trying to get good at scratching and beat matching and all of it. Um, but then around 95, I got offered a couple of DJ sets. So, um, yeah, I was DJing, doing bits and bobs, doing that. Then I went to uni around that time, 95. Where'd you go? Uh, well, it was Stockport College, which uh, had a really good graphic design course, basically. Yeah. And it was a really cool sort of open-minded, sort of almost fine art kind of graphic design course. Uh, so you could pretty much do what you wanted with it, which was dead cool. And most of the people in there were musicians as well. You know, there's a, there's a whole whole bunch of sort of notable Mancunian names that that came out of there but uh, yeah doing bits of student dues over there one of the guys who did some of the college dues was uh, Andy Votel of Finders Keepers oh, right. in uh, Twisted Nerve so that camp pretty much came out of uh, Stockport College so uh, when we finished there we started a night in Manchester at night and day called Pork Scratching and um, sort of a funny name for a and now vegan, but uh, yeah, it was pork scratching. And um, that was with a guy called uh, Gareth Mallinson, who is uh, Sir Conical, who was one of the first artists on Voltel's Twisted Nerve Records before Badly Drawn Boy and all that lot. Right. Um, and the idea of that was we'd play sort of music we were interested in, kind of across the board from weird underground hip hop to ele- electronica and stuff at the beginning of the night. And then at some point in the night, our drummer, Carl Sharrix, who I went on to do the live stuff later on in my career with and mm. brilliant drummer, he was on the drums. Gary was on, on the contrabass. Gareth sort of had a sampler and he was doing weird stuff with the sampler, but the lead was the turntables. So we'd kind of start off 
with samples from the turntables and the rest of the band would jam it out and we'd go on mad freestyle adventures for the next two hours. So it was proper art school stuff and like the crowd ate it up and at times it was mental, like sonically mental. (laughs) But um, such a formative experience for me, figuring out how to work with musicians and how to interact with musicians and even how to work with different time signatures. And yeah, it was proper freeform turntable jazz, really. That was that was pre all the battling and all that lot. That was about 1997. And that kind of ran its course. And at the same time, my best mate, who we had sort of a rap crew with, he was another sort of uh, amazing sort of meet at, at college a few years earlier, you know, the one other person who kind of looks like he's into hip-hop. <laughs> like, we spent a week sort of dissing each other behind each other's backs, thinking that we were into the worst kind of rap music. And then, uh, yeah, first conversation was, uh, you into rap then? You into hip-hop? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what are you into then? And he was expecting me to say, like, some something pants. And I'm like, yeah, Blade. And he was like, what? <laughs> and it uh, turns out, this, this guy, uh, Dave Trevelyan, MC Tigger, was also into exactly the same kind of stuff as me. So we formed a little rap group, Just Mental. Anyway, come 98, at the end of this pork scratching, we went to Fresh 98. Mm-hmm. And we all kind of, uh, we were just getting somewhere with stuff, you know. I was getting to the point where I thought, all right, skills getting sharper, having the experience performing in Manchester and having a few people tell me I was getting decent or whatever. It was kind of time to show and prove and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we all went to Fresh 98 with this mission, you know, to uh, go in there as a bunch of kids from the sticks and, you know, show some skills. So I did that on the open turntables. I think I was the first one that jumped up. Uh, The Scratch Perverts were um, hosting open turntables in the basement. And uh, my mate Tigger also did it in the rap ciphers, you know, got on stage and, you know, is we a whole bunch like all mud family were there and everybody and you know like so many people were there we were chatting to keller before keller was keller in the in the queue and chilling with, with the 360 physicals and all, all this kind of generation of hip-hop heads coming up trying to trying to show the skills we came back from that and tigger had decided that that didn't fill the void that he wanted hip-hop to fill basically and uh, gave everything up. Do you want to buy my records? Uh, I'm giving up hip-hop. It didn't fill fill that thing for him. And um, he found Islam, basically. He got super into Islam. And uh, so, very long story short, um, from that point, I was like, oh, well, well what, what do I do? I thought we were in a rap crew. crew. Now yeah. we don't have a rapper. So I was kind of thinking what to pursue. So the next thing was battling you know I, I i was doing this freestyle now this avant-garde kind of freestyle scratch jazz thing but the guys who were getting all the props uh in manchester were the guys who were battling so we're talking uh dj mark one he'd won the northern dmc here a bunch of times and then 98 uh the man who was dominating uh the northern battle scene was peter parker uh, yeah who went on to do finger thing so with now no rapper to uh, pursue our UK rap dreams, I was like, right, okay. Well, the thing thing that I've got to do is uh, beat Peter Parker. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I signed myself up for the uh, 99 Manchester DMC heat. 
And uh, as it turned out, uh, Dan, Peter Parker, didn't uh, even enter that one. So uh, I had to swap all these Peter Parker disses I got sorted. <laughs> I had to swap them all out last minute. But uh, yeah, that kind of started the bowl rolling on, on the battle thing. But I had it in my head that I'd need to practice for at least seven years before I started battling. And uh, actually thinking about it, it was seven years after I got the, got the first proper turntable. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so 99, and then, uh, yeah, kind of a bit of a snowball effect from there, really. So just aside from having to change the samples, because I remember at DJs for Life, and this is me going back into things, so for anyone listening, DJs yeah. for Life was this amazing event that was put on in Birmingham in around, I guess, 2006, and there were seminars with loads of different amazing turntablists and DJs, and I remember seeing you in one, and you were talking about your level of hunger when you were battling and just saying whoever it was, you just flat wanted to eat their kids or whatever. <laughs> not quite as hardcore, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm not sure it was, it wasn't anything too far off from that. It was this real kind of, kind of focus. Um, so was that, were you kind of deflated at all when you realized that he wasn't entering because he'd been that kind of goalpost for you? Um, a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I had, pictures of Dan in my in my room you know I wasn't <laughs> sort of uh you know it it, it 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 was more about just that kind of rite of passage in the hip-hop sort of culture really you know it was more about sure. getting props in the local scene you know I wanted at some point to elevate to be sort of nationally sort of of a standard you know but at that point really it was like I want to be known as the best DJ in the north you know the best yeah. scratch DJ in Manchester that that was my goal and i ended up getting second that night um dj uppercut from york uh pulled pulled a doozy out of the bag um <laughs> everything went well on my front well it was disastrous in the day because uh, it was like the hottest day of the year in planet k in manchester and uh, this this is a time in the uk dmc's when 40 or 50 djs had turn up to one heat and it'd be a different 40 or 50 djs turn up to a different heat, you know, there was a lot of DJs entering. Yeah. Uh, so Swifty, Cutmaster Swift, he had to judge all the eliminations. So we'd have like 40 or 50 DJs have to do like one minute in front of him or something or 90 seconds in front of him. Then he'd have to figure out who on earth he'd put through for the last eight or 10 in the yeah. evening. So obviously me having it in my head, head that like I was a contender for the, for the overall thing, Obviously, getting through to the final was crucial. Otherwise, I wasn't even in the running, you know. So I had, I thought, right, I'm going strong. I'll do this, this, this part of the set. Got in there. It was like sweltering for Manchester, <laughs> and uh, it was hot enough to melt all of my sticker uh, markers on on the records. So, I, so I like it came to crunch crunch point. Swifty puts his uh, timer on. I'm all set to go realized all my all my stickers have moved and like the little lock groove juggle thing I've got going on or whatever it was oh, no. wasn't wasn't locking and this wasn't starting at the right place and this sticker was knocking that bit off and uh, so sort of 20 seconds in I'm like I'm going to have to stop everything's you know and uh, so he's like no no the clock's ticking carry on and I'm thinking oh my god so I just had to drag a beat out of the out of the bag and just cut like a lunatic for the for the following like 50 seconds and uh, somehow that got me through but yeah uppercut on the night um there were the, i had no issues with the set on the night um 
I, I, I wasn't sure if my nervous energy had mucked me up or sort of helped me. But uh, as it turned out, uh, somehow I, I sort of turned the nervous energy sort of into aggression. That's probably what I was talking about at the DJ right. event. And uh, somehow I managed to flip it, the nervousness. And, and yeah, the attitude was, right, everybody's going to die, you know. <laughs> um, and and it, and it was wicked, you know, got, got really good uh, response. But, uh, yeah, uppercut timed it absolutely perfectly he had um it was the week that they were re-releasing uh the star wars films uh like i think it was the first remake when they'd done the cgi in it or whatever it was and he did the emperor's march theme with a tone and it just absolutely crushed it everybody's like Whoa. Mm-hmm. and uh yeah so so he he won on the night but as second place i got through to the final so i was like oh my god i'm in the london final it's going to be on a video so from that point, all of a sudden, your sort of uh, vision gets a bit wider and you're just like, well, I, you know, I need to represent myself on a decent level here. You know, if, if I yeah. want to compete with the scratch perverts who were dominating, obviously, they were people I, I was looking at watching the videos like, God, if I ever get there, you know, I've got to get to that level, you know? Yeah. Uh, so from that point on, it's like, you know what, I, I need to study these guys and see what they're not seeing and fill in the gaps and, you know, find the chinks in the armor. Do you know what I mean? Is is that a case of rather than trying to do what they do as well as them, try and do another thing? It's almost like creating your own niche. Absolutely. I mean, and it was such a creative time in DJing anyway. You're talking late 90s, early, very early 2000s. There was new stuff coming out every year. That's what, that's one of the things that I loved about going to the battles before I was battling. You know, each year I'd go to the boardwalk or wherever it was in Manchester that year. And um, you knew you were going to see something you'd never seen before. You know, I always remember seeing DJXL from Wales do the twiddle for the first time. Absolutely game changer. Multiple fingers on the fader to make it twice as fast. Like, ridiculous. Nobody had done that. Uh, you know, and then I saw, I think the first person I saw crab, it wasn't actually Cuba. It was, um, prime cuts. I sent him do like crabbing and I was like, oh my God, there's three fingers now, <laughs> uh, you know, like, so the thing that excited me about scratch battles was that you didn't know what was going to happen. And there was this instrument that could create new sounds by inventing new technique. You know, that was so exciting for me. Yeah, I, th- I think what's interesting about that era as well is it's music wasn't being produced in the same way with a lens on it being super clean for battling. You were kind of still using what's there readily available and it and it kept the connection between being a club DJ and a turntablist. So it still had that funk. Yeah, I mean, there were, I, I always kind of approached them with a different hat on, if you will, you know, because some of the stuff I was trying on turntables, I mean, yeah, you just couldn't do in a club. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. it's not for that, you know, it's almost like a a different target audience. Um, I mean, for, for me, mentally at the time, and, and sometimes I took it too far, I think, I, I was really focused on trying to do stuff that would blow the other DJ's minds or or, yeah. or just show people stuff that they weren't expecting or you know i i really wasn't the kind of battle dj to be like if i do this this will make you know the crowd go wild because 
it's that tune that they all know. Yeah, that wasn't really my focus. I, I was very technically focused. I wanted it to sound good as well, but um, I was really focused on on the skill set, on the development of technique, on the development of ideas. Just trying to get ideas across, really, and kind of mad scientist style, really. Uh, when you were practicing for battles and getting your sets together, were you kind of practicing all your um, body language stuff as well and the kind of stage presence? Yeah, not... not um, I would do that. It was kind of an afterthought. Um, I'll be honest, during the time I was battling, I think I was an unemployed uni graduate, basically. But then... Yeah, I got got my first job. I was working in Manchester 40 plus hours a week plus a commute. I wasn't one of those guys living off DJing, able to practice six or seven hours a day. I had a very long days at work and I had to fit the practice in where I could, whether it meant getting up at half five and getting an, an hour or two in before I had to set off for work or staying up till two in the morning, having got in at eight at night. Do you know what I mean? It was like, fitting it in where I could. So a lot of my uh, preparation and a lot of the ideas literally came from uh, like a pen and a pad. You know, I'd sit in the room, sketching out decks on a thing, look at, looking at what parts of turntables and mixers people weren't using. And obviously this is all when it was two channels and a, and a crossfader, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'd take uh, a little finger uh, strengthener tool into work maybe i'd take an old crossfader in and practice uh fader moves on the crossfader so a lot of my thinking was away from the decks yeah when i got time on the decks it was trying to sort of develop and explore some of the ideas that i had away from the decks uh so and then eventually you sort of format some of those ideas into some kind of routine and then closer to the battle i'm thinking Okay, I've got a little little bit here that maybe I can look up at the crowd and do this. So I was trying to work that in, but I was really kind of focused on getting getting yeah, getting the routines how I wanted them to sound, you know. There were certain routines that I did that were easier than others, like the second ever DMC that I did, the routine was so hard. <laughs> it was like really, really hard to pull off. And it was probably sounded mental. Do you know what I mean? It was like I remember John Peel's son was into turntablism. So for a couple of years, and thankfully it was the couple of years when I was in the UK DMC, <laughs> John Peel would invite the finalists or, or maybe the to- top half of the finalists or whatever it was uh, to Made Avail to do the sets and stuff. So uh, after doing all this weird noise that, you know, my parents hadn't understood, all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I'm going on John Peel, mum, you know. So then you sort of anti-start tuning in and... Uh, yeah, it was 2000 DMC, my set. I liked my set, but it sounded bonkers. You know, I had all these kind yeah. of ideas that uh, that I wanted to sort of pursue. But sonically, like, if you couldn't see that routine, it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I always remember uh, my Auntie Jean, like, seeing us like a month or two after. She's like, oh, yeah, I listened to you on John Peel. And uh, <laughs> she tried to make it a compliment, but I can, yeah, it was blatantly clear that I'd completely confused the sonically <laughs> like yeah like what the hell was that do you think that the le- your kind of level of avant-garde stopped you winning the dmcs um yeah i think so and 
to be honest with you, I, I toned it down. The second year was like my slightly bonkers trying to push the envelope year. Actually, that year, um, the hardest set I'd ever seen done was by plus one in the sound check. Um, right. It was the year Mr. Thing won, which was an awesome set as well. But I couldn't believe what I was seeing plus one doing that year. It was t- 2000 in the sound check. It was un- unbelievable. Unfortunately, it didn't get it as clean in the actual performance on the night. Is that when he was about 16 as well? It was dead young because uh, I, I knew of uh, Neil via uh, Richie, Richie Roughtone, because we used to go up and DJ up there and um, and him and Brian, his uh, dynamic duo, duo partner, they were both like complete prodigies. Do you know what I mean? Like like yeah. Neil plus one was amazing before he even had his own... Did he have his own decks? So I think I think first Technics he ever had, it, it, it won him in Scotland for DMC. Do you know what I mean? Just one of those, right. like, is yeah, it was sort of one of those kind of stories, like, what, you've been DJing for two years? Like, how is this possible? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was the same when, when I first chatted to uh, Tiger Styles, actually. Um, he told me how long he'd been DJing. I, I couldn't believe it, like, how good he was for that yeah. kind of ridiculous. But, um, yeah, so going back to did do I think my sort of emphasis on on technique um, impede me from winning DMC? I, you never know. Like, I thought the best DMC set I ever did were, was actually 2001, the year that Plus One won it. You know, start to finish, I was happy with that. Like, there was different ideas going through. Our, I think it all sounded good. Plus One set was amazing. As like, yeah, yeah, I have no issue. Uh, sort of not winning, like not winning in a battle yeah. like that. The year after, I'd already won the world ITF uh, w- with the same sets that I was going to the UK DMC with. Uh, I ended up winning the world ITF. So at that point, I'm getting offered more DJ gigs. I'm traveling around a lot. And um, so I wasn't as focused on the D- DMC the year after yeah. anyway. So um, I don't think it it was a, a stronger set in 2002. But at the end of the day, it's all subjective and it depends who you've got on that judging panel. It depends what's going on in their heads. It's it's not it's not for, for me as a participant in it to really say why, who won what, yeah. what years. You could all, all you can do is go and represent yourself to the best and see what happens. Do you know what I mean? But certainly fr- from a technical standpoint, uh, when I was at the point that I was good enough to win it, I don't think it was the technical stuff that stopped me from. It was just the way the cards were dealt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think as soon as I asked that question, I realised it sounded a bit loaded anyway. No, but I understand the question because at the time there was very much uh, this sort of conversation between technical and funky and, you know, like and all, yeah. all this stuff. And I, I never saw it as a this or that. Do you know what I mean? Like my pursuit of technicality was... The a pursuit of musicianship. Do you know what I mean? So the way a musician wants to develop his technique in order to enhance what he can do with that instrument. Do you know what I mean? So it was never, yeah. uh, oh, it's musical or it's technical. No, no. The pursuit of technical excellence was the pursuit of musical excellence. Yeah. Which ITF, ca- was it a category that you won in the ITF or was it the all-around? It was, yeah, the all-around. So, um yeah, they called it the advancement. So that was the yeah. kind of 90-second versus 90-second kind of old-school music seminar uh, knockout 
kind of uh, thing. So you go round for round, and then if you win that battle, you you go to the next round. And yeah, did did you have to qualify in the UK for that, or was it invitational? Or yeah, um, yeah, I had to win the UK ITF to to get to the world. And then was it the Vestax Invitationals after that? Um, no, the Vestax also had a UK final. So um, so that was Fabric, I think, was the UK final for that. Um, so in 2001, I won the UK ITF and the UK Vestax competitions, and that qualified me to the World ITF and the World Vestax the same year. Uh, just so happened that they were... A week apart so the first weekend i was in la for the uh, world vestax extravaganza as it was called um so i was repping the uk for that one weekend and then i had a week to kind of mooch about and uh, explore la and san francisco because the itf was the following weekend in san francisco so oh, i nice. had sort of uh yeah a nice little sort of 10 days in the States, battling my heart out. So let me just ask you about Vestax then. So Technics and Vestax, for anyone who doesn't know, are the, are the, were the main turntable manufacturers for battle DJs way back when. Um, so the, the, the two companies have very, very different performing turntables, I would say. Maybe not very different. They have like slightly different performing turntables with different mechanical attributes and things like that. Um, different pitch faders on them and all this sort of thing. So when you would have been battling on techniques and learning the techniques, you're effectively learning how to play a Stratocaster mm. guitar, for example. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like, you're going to go in this battle of the bands, but you're going to have to start playing a Gibson instead. Mm. But maybe a bit more abstract than that. You, your, your strings are going to be tuned differently or whatever. Um, so how long, when you did the Vestax competitions, how long did you have to um, work with a Vestax turntable? Because you did some pretty crazy shit when you when you use them. Some of the most innovative stuff I would say I've seen on a turntable. Oh, cheers, dude. Um, yeah, it was a revelation when I first got Vestax turntables. The amazing thing about the Vestax was, for me, whereas, say... You know, the, the say the drunken trumpet routine by Kid Koala, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of drunkenness, I guess, is sort of, uh, I can't remember what he actually does technically in that, but, you know, if, if you're manipulating a pitch fader on the techniques, it's going to sound kind of worry because it's catching up with your movement, you know. it's te mm. te There's a lag between you moving that fader and that pitch changing up. Uh, the first thing I noticed with the Technic, uh, with the Vestax PDX 2000 was that like it moves straight away. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like if I go, yeah. if I want to go, 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 it's going to do that. Do you know what I mean? It's, I'm not waiting. So all of a sudden your sort of pitch manipulation is more accurate. Add to that on the fader, you've got plus or minus 10, but add to that, you've got ultra pitch, which gives you a plus or minus 50. So all of a sudden, you got access to so much more range as far as pitch yeah. is concerned. So I kind of took that as a cue to really sort of explore melody because obviously being for years restricted by 33, 45, 
and plus or minus eight. So it's a new thing to master. It's a new, you know, even yeah. even trying to get accurate moving this tiny little ultra pitch fader that was an additional fader on the turntable. Try, trying to man, manipulate that accurately so you could get to the, the pitch that you wanted so it would sound like the, the, you know, the tune you wanted to create. Even having the reverse button on there, you know, um, all of a sudden, right, yeah. I can stick stuff in reverse instantly and play around with this sample going backwards, like, accurately, you know. So, um, yeah, that was super exciting for me, creatively. Fair enough, you couldn't necessarily turn up to a club and do that, you know, uh, without taking that particular turntable. But this was about making music with a turntable, and all of a sudden, like you say, we've been given a better instrument. So, yeah, no, yeah, I just really tried to sort of uh, push that as much as I could, so... But even from like a mechanical point of view as well, when you realise that you can take the tone arm away from the turntable, and yeah. when you do that juggle with two tone arms on the same record, I think my head exploded. <laughs> well, I think my head exploded when I realised that you could do that and nobody else had noticed that you could do that. Because I was like, <laughs> like when I first got those turntables home, I was literally like, right, what can I do? What, what can these do? And uh, I noticed that that the turntables like moved away from the uh, sorry the tone arm moved away from the turntable. I'm like, honestly, my first thought that popped in my head was, how have none of the scratch perverts noticed this? Yeah. And, and then and then and then I moved the tur- the other turntable next to it. And I'm like, I've got two tone arms on one turntable here. What can I do with this? I'm like, well, if I wire the mixer this way. I can just move one record and manipulate two different instruments simultaneously. Yeah. Oh man, let's let's go to town on this one. You know, so yeah, just kind of uh just exploring, just like so much fun, do you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you can do new stuff. Yeah, and that's that's proper like mad scientist sort of business. <laughs> so I, I know I was going to try not to be really granular, but then the the other routine which is probably a slight different sway on how you're using the equipment and stuff and how you're approaching creativity is your ugly duckling little samba one. Because I think with that, what's amazing with that is I don't know what's that. That's effectively, I think probably a jazz mode musical scale. I wouldn't know which one because I don't know much about jazz, but I'm guessing that you didn't put that together thinking, Oh, I'm going to do a Phrygian or a Mixolodian or whatever it is. Um, but you've just kind of gone with something and experimented and found something that sounds amazing and creating without that bit of music. Cause I think a bit of musical theory can be a bad thing because it might, cause it can maybe stop you experimenting. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting that you did something that's in, it's almost like an Egyptian sort of scale, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I come from zero musical education or knowledge. Like, yeah, yeah like, like I say, my mum my was into music and stuff, but I've got, um, yeah, in the family, there's nobody that plays an instrument, but oddly, oddly, we had like a piano, uh, in the house. And then I think they flogged or give, give it away. It was like one of those old sort of ones that a vicar had have, a, you know what I mean? Like those school pianos. Yeah. And, what I do have, I think, is a pretty decent ear for when things are in and out of tune, basically. Right. So, um, yeah, just DIY, just sort of give it a go and see what you can do. Do you know what I mean? Just um, So that 
that's probably the one that comes to mind for most people because it's something you can whistle it's something you can yeah you can sing along to people can can sing that back to me it's, it's pretty mad um, it's it's really expressive as well though because you've got the the dynamics in it as well which is the sort of nuance a lot of turntablists might not think about when they're trying to do is sort of a melodic um scratch routine i was just trying to make something that sounded good and it, it was probably the quickest routine I, I ever put together i think from sticking the sample on and putting it together with the the ugly duckling beat that i was using um yeah, it probably took me an hour to come up with the, those melodies or something like that. Uh, it's o- often the case, so the stuff that's meant to be kind of just works, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think one one of the things just to mention about um, just a little samba as well. Not only is it a great beat, but I realised recently how well Ugly Duckling stuff is arranged. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because they have proper bridges and stuff um because that's what i that's why i think pete rock's my favorite producer well that's why pete rock is my favorite producer because of the way he arranges and puts bridges in he creates songs rather than beats and yeah. i've just realized that ugly duckling has that same sort of thing and that was all young einstein right he yeah yeah for that yeah. another person i'm trying to get him on as well yeah yeah he so, seems seems like a really nice guy yeah so that week in la and san francisco did you win both of those battles no so the first battle was the Vestax battle in LA and to be honest with you I did my set super clean uh, but yeah nobody knew who the hell I was and basically I, I I believe I came forth like when they totted up the the points Boogie Blind won that and I think Rock did Rocky Rock come second or something so yeah so I kind of relaxed after that point so that week in between Vestax and ITF I kind of hardly practiced. I was just like doing the tourist thing in between and just hanging out with a bunch of people. Ended up meeting D Styles at the Vestax competition. And he said, like, if you're down in San Francisco next week, give us a shout or whatever. So I ended up sort of going to his place and having a jam and, you know, just sort of, yeah, just hooking up with a bunch of cool people uh, while I was out there. And, um, yeah, so for the ITF, I was a bit more chilled, but less practiced. And uh, that was the one that kind of, uh, yeah, became quite surreal when, like, going through the rounds, all of a sudden you realize you're, you're in a boxing ring, like, looking at another DJ, and there's one, <laughs> one DJ sort of in the way of a world title, you know. So, yeah, it was the, yeah, world, world ITF the following weekend, and that's the one I won. So, uh yeah, it wasn't till the following year that I ended up uh, winning the World Vestax. And that was the one that I did the just a little samba routine in. Yeah. So. And was that the last battle that you did? Yeah, I was kind of like, I mean, I couldn't, not that I, you know, sort of, you know, I'd studied everybody to the point that I was, you know, I, I knew I could compete with these people. Do you know what I mean? I never expected to win a world title, but once it got to that point, I kind of didn't see the point in carry on, carrying on, to be fair. Like, I mean, I'd really kind good. of got that thing out of my system, really. Um, That's kind of growth mindset sometimes, isn't it? To kind of, If you've learned all that you can and developed as much as you can, what's the next challenge? Yeah, and, and that was it. And by that point, uh, I was getting offered sort of, 
tours and stuff like that and to work with different people. Um, so that seemed like the logical thing thing to do, really. Um, and it, it's so time-consuming. You're so focused, like, you know, your entire year is focused on, like, six minutes. And, um, you know, I didn't have that aspiration anymore. You know, I got, got to the other side of that, so... Yeah. Were you ever, or have you ever been tempted to go back into battling? I've not. People ask me that uh, because obviously the kind of big, the big one that I didn't win was, well, uh, you know, World DMC. And obviously that's the kind of uh, one that we sort of grow up kind of wanting to, to, to do. But like, no, it's got no pull to actually to go for that anymore. I mean, it's been really nice to be fair even though I never actually won that competition, um, the people there have always been so cool with me and I've pretty much judged, you know, so so many of their competitions ever since. And I kind of look, take it as a, a privileged position for them, even though I'm not a former DMC champion, like a national or a, or a world DMC champion, I'm so honoured to have been asked to do various showcases for him in, in the past. You know, that's yeah. like, I feel as privileged to do that as to go and rep in the competitions again. You know, it's like one of my sort of proudest kind of moments was going there, performing my own music with with Carl drumming and my friend Christian Madden uh, on the keys, performing my own, my own music, you know, getting to go to the world finals and, showcase music there it's like yeah I'd, I'd love to see people's reactions though if you did i think you want to you you're probably one of the say like top five people that if they were like right i'm getting back into battling people would be like oh jesus <laughs> what am i gonna do now what's the point well the the only thing about that is like i'd have yeah i know what i'm like i'd have to kind of um fully go all in and like you no, know no, no. And the, oh, I mean, psychologically, it'd be quite punishing, really, because when you're coming from a 20-plus year career in turntablism, there'd be so much pressure applied. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. basically, unless you win, you've lost. Like, you've fully yeah. lost. Do you know what I mean? So it's not you're not coming as some underdog from East Lancashire who nobody knows, which is an awesome place to be because nobody yeah. expects... No, nobody expects some kid from the north to come down and and beat them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So if you do do that, you're on top of the world. You're, you know. But once, yeah, coming from oh, he's a former former this or that or the other, and he's done this and that. Yeah, it's a, it's a no win situation really. So when you were doing the battles, doing the worlds and stuff like that, were you still doing the full time job? Yeah, um, I didn't quit the job until. Maybe six months after the second world title, something like that. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, I was working at Granada for the entirety of the uh, of the battling period, really, which which was like crazy short, to be honest. It was like nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and two. I sort of hung up the the battle headphones, and then yeah, there was opportunities that arose subsequently after after those wins that uh, gave me enough confidence to at least give the full-time hip-hopper sort of dream a bash uh even even if it was just a six-month bash uh i took the deep dive and uh 20 odd years later i'm still uh <laughs> st- 
still doing it, but uh, yeah. So if we get into that then, what, what was the first sort of key opportunity that came your way after after the Worlds? Well, I was getting offered more bookings sort of around the country and stuff like that and get starting to be asked to do showcases at different um, battles around Europe and whatnot. But the kind of straw that uh, broke the camel's back, if you will, um, was I got offered to tour the US um, on the Super Rapping Tour, which was basically three turntablists, uh, myself, DJ Petrix, DJ Dopey from Canada, and um, three rap acts. So it was D-Claim and Jay Sands from Lone Catalyst and Loot Pack, which is obviously Mad Lib, Wild Child and DJ Roams. So, I mean, for me, sort of touring, going around the States in a van with like a bunch of, you know, absolute hip-hop dons, uh, quite appealed. So um, looking at the holiday sort of uh, entitlement that I had left at uh, Granada, um, <laughs> you know, I had like two weeks of holiday and this was going to be longer than that. I was like, you know what, you know, I've got, I've got bill money for the next six months. You know, I can pay my bills. I know that. Let's just do it. I'm only, you know, you're only young ones. Um, so, uh, yeah, I went for it, took the leap. So what was it like on that tour then? Did you manage to kind of not fanboy out or anything like that? Because you're like a pretty humble guy. Did you did you manage just, were you like relaxed with it or were you just like, what am I doing here? Um, I quite, I quite like this analogy because it, it really felt like this sometimes. But um, obviously you're hearing everybody speak all day. It, was, it wasn't my first time in the States, but it was my first time having prolonged uh, time in the States. And um, <clears throat> all, all day, obviously, you're doing hip-hop shows, you're in a van, you're listening to hip-hop, you're, you know, you're sort of chatting to everybody about music and everything, you know. But you're hearing LA accents for the most part all day. And, uh, and then you pipe up and, hey, oh, when's, uh, you know, when's the next stop off on the toilet? You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, switching the channel from uh, from whatever, you know, sort of some hip hop movie to Coronation Street instantly. So it's kind of, it, yeah, it was quite surreal. But at the end of the day, um, that's the thing I love about this culture. You've got enough in common with everybody to just get on. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it, it wasn't like I was a fish out of water. We, we were all kind of on this mission and we're, you know, we're all, we all love this art form and we all, uh, try to excel in in this stuff so there's you know so yeah it had surreal moments but um very much i was also sort of riding the crest of you know doing the battles and with the world titles and everything so i was just out there to to represent really and try and you know sort of uh, do my thing and yeah yeah it was just a, an amazing adventure were there any um, kind of unexpected skills or takeaways or learnings you got from any of those guys or hanging out with them in such an intense period? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it was awesome sort of getting to know Petrix and Dopey better and uh, meeting so many people on that scene and kind of getting more sort of familiar with, you know, the turntablist culture out there and stuff like that. And certainly, you know, we were jamming all the time, you know, any spare, you know, sound checks, we were jamming all the time and just uh, getting insights into, you know, so, some of their routines. You know, I was watching those guys do their showcases every night and we'd, we'd get granular and geeky about our thinking behind things and how, how we put things together. So there was all that learning. But also just uh, on on the beats 
thing, you know, this is a time when it was literally when Madlib was writing the album with JD, you know, so most of these journeys in the van, you know, you're talking eight hour trips across the States, you know, you're basically listening to Dilla beat tapes, you know, so fishing out like the tracks that he likes for, you know, the Champion Sounds al- album or whatever and hearing Madlib talk about, you know, sort of his process and stuff like that or just hitting the record shops with him and stuff. But yeah, from from all of the guys, you know, even the way sort of Rome's looked at DJing with a rap crew, you know, and his sort of take on sort of doing cuts for tracks and and even just the business side of things, do you know what I mean? Just how, how gigs worked in the States, how sort of, yeah, the underground scene works out there so far as gigging and going out there. It, yeah, yeah, it was massive. It was wicked. Amazing. So what was it like coming back? Did you come back to like a load of offers and just was, was everything simple or or did was there a bit of, because obviously you'd take, you'd left work with that sort of booking in mind. Did you then come back and you're like, oh shit, I've got to find some gigs or was it just like, yeah, I'm good? Um, it, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, doing this thing as a full-time profession is never plain sailing. I'd say for the, for maybe two years post sort of, uh, battle wins, and uh, there's a certain amount of gigs that I wouldn't say come automatically. You've still got to kind of put yourself out there, but, uh, certainly there was a couple of years where the credentials of being a current world champion or nearly current world champion means that there's certain offers that come in. And it was at a time when there was still a good circuit of hip-hop clubs around the country and around Europe uh, that were looking for, you know, scratch champions to book, you know. The ITF uh, also was particularly big in Europe, um, Germany in particular, so there was plenty of uh, gigs out there uh, being the ITF world champion. Um, So yeah, it, it kind of, one thing rolled on to the next, and then two years down the line quite randomly really DJ Vadim got in touch and he was after a new DJ to sort of join the Russian percussion so that kind of came along and that ended up being my world for the next three or four years uh, touring with those guys sort of 100 plus shows a year uh, and that was obviously another incredible opportunity but an incredible sort of learning process as well but uh how how was touring on that level? We you've been with your partner a long time, haven't you? If you don't mind yeah, me asking yeah. that, yeah, yeah. Um, how did that impact on home life? Um, she's always been amazing about it, and um, to be honest, I think I certainly couldn't tour like that now, being a dad. Certainly in my twenties, it was much easier to do that kind of thing. But um, you just kind of cherish the time you do have at home, and. Uh, make time for each other when you are there you know it wasn't constant but certainly after a few years doing that I I I can't fathom people who do that kind of touring for decades you know yeah yeah it's a big sacrifice unless unless your entire world can be kind of nomadic with you then it is you know it is quite uh, labor intensive and quite sort of uh, mentally and physically draining as well you know that that much kind of sleep deprivation and travel and kind of uh, lack of regularity and you know it's sort of every week's completely different so yeah it was it was great for a period but uh for me not sustainable for for a long time yeah it, it takes a certain sort of person do you think that when you were doing it then there was a bit of um like a make hay while the sun shines and it's like and did like did you think at the time 
but I know I'm not going to do this forever, so I may as well just get it in whilst I can and whilst I've got the energy. Um, I didn't really have that kind of wide-angle kind of lens on it, to be honest with you. It was kind of a situation of, this is amazing, I'm living the dream, you know. On a Tuesday night, you might be playing in a in a club in Austria, in a town you've never heard of, to, you know, sort of a really, you know, there might be 50 people in a small basement club on a Tuesday night, but then on the Saturday night, you might be in a good concert venue and have a few hundred people rocking it. It was just always, oh, it's tons of fun. Like, we're probably, you know, one of the most fun live setups I've ever been a part of because it was very freestyle. There was a very loose um, structure around it. We knew what songs we'd be doing, but there was enough room to really flex and have fun and for each performance to be unique and play with the crowd in a different way and me and Vadim would DJ often before we did the live set and sometimes after we did the live set and um, for the first couple of years this is pre-Serato so we were lugging records everywhere and you know a certain town in Switzerland likes you know the reggae tinged stuff and the next town might be might be a funk town the next town might be a straight up sort of in independent backpacky hip-hop town you know um so trying to work with all those different crowds and uh yeah it was just yeah tons of fun it's great that you got to improvise like that I mean I I did some scratching for a band for a few years which I think kind of held me back in a way because it meant that I didn't take other gigs that could have taken me on a more fun route. Um, but that's my experience specifically. Um, and what I found with that, I was just scratching on a couple of tunes and firing off a few samples. And I, I, I kind of struggled with the rigidity of it. Uh, and I just thought yeah. it must be weird like when you're a touring band or something and you're doing the exact same thing. That get each gig and you've got your three or five tunes that you know you've got to play or you basically won't make it out of there yeah like it must be it must be mad like having that that mindset it's kind of like going to a factory every day and just putting the same bottle top on yeah it's um i suppose every band has different dynamics you know what i mean i've i've, I've done done all yeah quite quite a few different bands um used to dj for broken english and dj for crispy three uh, and um and for for uh, for a while, sort of, uh, when was it, two thousand and seven to two thousand and nine? Um, quite randomly, I was essentially a Spanish hip hop DJ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> off the back of the the Vadim stuff and the the One Self stuff, the Spanish manager of uh, the tours we did out there uh, had this really big artist called Mala Rodriguez, and um, yeah, uh, all of a sudden she she needed a, a new DJ, uh, so I sort of signed up for that. And that was mental and that was a completely different dynamic, you know, all, all of a sudden she was essentially kind of, you know, pop star status over there and in, in sort of in the Spanish speaking world. So all of a sudden it's like much bigger crowds, but obviously, you know, the emphasis is very much on the start, you know, so mm. you're, you are kind of that sort of uh, background guy. So a lot of pressure and a completely different dynamic and those shows were could be pretty different as well you know the set list did change around but like you say there was definite songs that fans needed to hear you know because yeah i think i think she had a bunch of number ones in spain and around uh, sort of um yeah the spanish-speaking world so uh a very different but uh equally interesting sort of uh, situation and uh experience 
Are there any sort of cities where you've gigged that they're just really close to your heart just for the energy or the, the anything like that or the venues where someone would go, can you come play here and just in a heartbeat, you'd be like, yep. Um, well, I had one recently actually that uh, really made me think in, in those terms. And um, there are certain promoters w- when you've been sort of doing this for so long that um, are repeat bookings and, you know, sort of they, they become friends essentially, you know. And um, two of those off the top of my head are uh, Guernsey and uh, Portrush. Gary and Andre, uh, the promoters out there, I don't know, the s- scene builders, you know, they've really kind of nurtured a scene and sort of tastemakers, they've they've educated a generation of sort of music lovers in their town, you know, by yeah. booking the acts they book and playing the records they play at the nights that, that they put on. Um, so I, I love those kind of promoters, those kind of kind of cities where you go and you, you know it's a community, you know. I I, I used to play for uh, No Faking in Liverpool, and that was the same deal that the No Faking boys, yeah. like they, you know, used to book up like quality acts every time, and you know they've got a home crowd that are just knowledgeable and just love it. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. so yeah, the place that I've played many times over the years in Port Rush in Northern Ireland, um, it was actually a, the final gig in in that venue uh, they're closing down after years i think they've been bought up and it's getting redeveloped and this that and the other but oh God. it's where all the all the sort of grassroots bands play from every genre you know punk yeah. or whatever and uh yeah and i've done s- s- some awesome fun gigs there before so yeah i played that about a month ago with andy smith and it was cracking so you know like a bunch of people travel from here, there, and everywhere to get there for the final one, and you know, just familiar faces like the local DJs and local crew, all there, and just, just like, just like visiting family. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, so it's th- those kind of places, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. When you when you know people are in it for the right reasons as well, it's not just a way to make a bit of profit. They really, really care about the culture and about the community. Yeah, yeah. Just, just real music lovers and people up for a good time and y- y- somewhere you know you're gonna have fun. You know. Yeah. So, was it around this time that you started developing the controller one turntable with Vestax? Um, so that's co- sort of skipping back uh, to kind of post the battle wins, really. So ever since I won the UK Vestax competition in two thousand and one, I basically had a sponsorship deal with Vestax, where they hooked me up with gear, and I think I'd vote my sort of interest in product development with the UK team and made them aware that I had ideas on various things. I'd always realised that what we're working with when we're working with the Technics turntable is, um, you know, we're sort of bastardising that instrument, you know, like hip-hop uh. came from using a piece of gear in a way you're not really supposed to use that gear, you know, which is awesome and what kind of gives it magic. But also this art form was developing in a way that made it necessary that we had tools developed in line with the ideas that we had uh, on how to push this thing you know let's sort of rip up that blueprint and uh, kind of really develop something to make music with turntables you know so might have been by the end of 2002 um Vestax got in touch and said look you know um the guys in the states are also talking about developing a turntable that's more about making music um and it was like d styles and ricky rucker and excess 
and uh, do you want to get involved in this thing? So I obviously jumped at it and um, they sent me some initial ideas and um, yeah, it was it was basically sort of the kind of thing that I'd also kind of dreamed of, you know. Um, so it was kind of a back and forth from then really. I'd sent them various illustrations, obviously being a graphic designer, I could sort of uh, draw up uh, these, these sort of ideas and stuff and uh, yeah, they'd send back the latest drawings on it and and by I think it was 2004 they basically booked most of the people who were helping them develop this turntable they'd booked them for the world finals in Japan so we all went to Tokyo and uh, all showcased at, at the extravaganza that year and we had like design meetings at the Vestax uh, offices and uh, yeah, so that was sort of all all part of the process, and then I think the first uh, finished articles came out two thousand and seven, I think was it, something like that, and then yeah, all the key, sort of key players in that kind of got sent one. How did how did you find it? Because I think it's fair to say it it was an amazing idea. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's rather than having a pitch control that's expressed in percentages, you've got musical intervals of semitones as keys around the yeah, turntable yeah. and like I wonder with it, it it was it was expensive to start with but I would wonder with it going back to what you said about hip-hop being about bastardizing and kind of using things in ways they're not supposed to be used I almost wonder if it gave DJs too much structure I think so I mean it, it, it was a strange process to be honest with you because it, it it's like that old adage uh, you know careful what you wish for sort of thing uh, because we we did we did have all these ideas, you know, because obviously we wanted to create more advanced sort of music, you know. We wanted to advance our music making on turntables, so we just th- threw all the ideas at the, at the wall, and you know, the the finished product was what was made. You know, it wasn't a commercial success. It was kind of a niche within a niche within a niche. Yeah. Uh, Particularly at the time, because essentially outside of the people directly involved in developing this thing, there wasn't a great deal of other turntablists really trying to do that. You know, you you could mention a few names, but really, you know, you're talking maybe 30 people in the world really trying to make turntable music, you know, like probably then really actually following it through and doing stuff with it. So, which is obviously not a big enough market to, uh, you know, sort of mass sell a product. I suppose it, cr- it crossed over timeline a bit, correct me if I'm wrong on this, with the era of custom records being used for battling and stuff like that as well. It did. I mean, it came out basically when that was uh, that was coming to a fore uh, within the battle scene. But I think, like you say, about the sort of the experience of using it and the experience of seeing it performed with um i remember my my thinking was as soon as i got this thing i really want to do a solo that everybody knows the solo everybody knows pitch wise what's supposed to be achieved but obviously because you can only play one note at a time on the turntable uh, it's got to be like a monophonic solo so something without chords and whatnot you know so i thought of the light my fire Doors solo, which is a monophonic solo. I actually uh, taught myself to read music for the first time just to to play that thing. And uh, it was really hard to achieve, to be honest with you. It didn't take that long to figure out, but actually to perform, it was like, I 
I'd have figured it out on a keyboard like in sort of a third of the time because you've yeah. got all, all the notes right there. With the controller one, I had to sort of switch the buttons up and down octaves and use a little toggle to go between semitones which weren't available to me on the buttons and stuff so it was really quite fiddly but musically i was kind of like i was pretty chuffed because i got it all note for note um and then i showed it to my mates i'm like check this out check this out dead excited like because i've got this new toy that's like gonna change the world and yeah and um thankfully i've got really honest mates who don't don't you know blow steam <laughs> at me but uh, they're like, yeah, it's, it's all right, that Woody, but uh, yeah, I prefer your other stuff, to be honest. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, right, I, I kind of get it because the way I was playing it at that point, I wasn't playing it like the best ever turntable ever made. I was playing it like a really awkward keyboard. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. over the course of the following years, I kind of learn because it's a new instrument essentially it's a turntable but it's it's not it's a new thing and i think that's why there's been people get them but not use them do you know what i mean yeah uh, and, and amazingly skilled people have these things who i've never seen them perform with it and I, th- I think part of that is because it you've almost got to create a new way to play on the thing yeah you, you've got to create your own way to play on it because nobody's had them before yeah and you know so you either take influence of, of the people who have already played or you figure it your own way out. So there was a process, definitely a process, that took a couple of years. In fact, to be honest with you, mine was in, in the flight case for a good while because I kind of got slightly disillusioned with it because I was like, oh, is this the thing that I wanted? You know, Over time, I figured out a way to use it in the way I like to manipulate turntables, but the technology wasn't dictating my creativity. It was assisting it. Right. Do you know what I mean? So uh, all of a sudden I could work with a sample in the way I wanted to, but repitch it at any point, you know what I mean? And so that's when it started becoming really interesting for me, rather than it being a cack-handed piano, like just being a, yeah, an awesome turntable. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Those two totally different ways that you can look at something like that. It can give you like a million possibilities yeah. or it can really like limit you to doing something very um rigid it's like i knew a little bit of music theory and i'd rather i'd have known either loads or none at all because of the way i do things musically i i I don't do anything original i just kind of take from these little bits that i know and Mm. and it and it limits me whereas i see other people that they don't have these boundaries and they just come up with some really creative stuff I think that's that, that's the way I, I kind of see. Obviously, tech companies are incentivized to bring new singing and dancing things out every two minutes. And obviously, it fits their business model. But I try not to immerse myself in every every new feature going because, yeah, it can be good. It can open up things that sort of are new, new ideas. But I don't like the idea of a tech company dictating where my creativity goes. Yeah. I'm of the school of um, limitations bring outside of the box creativity. That that sort of uh, interests me and excites me kind of a bit more than boggling my brain with tech, really. Yeah, you look at at what was made on um, SP1200s and 404s and things like that musically. You know, you you don't need to have a load of um, tech. I've, I've led you down that path again, haven't I? (laughs) <laughs> it's all good it's all good <laughs> just gone deep so just going back to the timeline then 
coming coming back to where we'd left off after the tour. Um, that was then when you started doing the turntables in Technicolor, wasn't it? And you did the AV. Yeah, so I, I finished uh, working with Mala Rodriguez doing a yeah sort of uh, doing all that touring, and then um, I'd always been interested in the AV stuff um, ever since the DVDJs came out. But I just felt at the time being that my career had come off the back of being sort of a turntablist champion and this that and the other, and the fact that I just loved working with turntables. I didn't pick it up when it was uh, still on the DVDs. Uh, as soon as Serato announced that they were bringing a video feature in that you could use Serato with, I was like, right, brilliant. I can get, can get on this. So yeah. So then I set to work trying to, try, trying to do my thing with that really. Um, and yeah, that's gone down various paths. Uh, the, yeah. Like I said, the first one was turntables in Technicolor, which was nearly all kind of original sort of animations that I did really. Um, pretty techy it was yeah it was pretty bonkers it was it was kind of like learning to dj again because all of a sudden you you're working out in real time as as you're doing these performances you're figuring out what works visually with the crowd as well as sonically you know so um yeah so awesome experience but uh yeah were you doing it all in after effects yeah largely yeah um i'm not like the world's most advanced animator by any means um you know i'm not so bad at sort of getting something down that looks looks okay but uh, a lot of the animations were pretty simple but i i wanted things that you could tell the interaction between the turntables and the movement so a lot of the time it's quite simple movements so it was a case of just trying to make things that looked good that could illustrate that sort of interaction really but uh, yeah illustrator photoshop but then after effects for the most part for all all the animations yeah it must have been nice being able to bring your passion for visual together with the passion for the music as well yeah i mean i i never thought that those two things would interact in that way do you know what i mean like yeah. obviously you know you can design your own mixtape covers you can design your own record sleeves you know but to actually DJ with your own visuals that, you know, certainly never saw that come in uh, 20 years previous or whatever. Yeah, so so did you do a lot of touring with that and with the um, hip-hop anniversary show? Yeah, uh, well, the, the anniversary show was a few years after that, but uh, yeah, I've been been all, all around the world with that stuff. I got to showcase World DMC uh, in 2011, I think was it or 2010 with turntables and technical and then the u.s chapter uh, asked me to new york to showcase the u.s uh, dmc finals i think the year later doing the visual stuff and yeah sort of things like uh hip-hop camp in czech republic and all kinds of stuff but it, it was also actually even though all, all of the sort of evidence of turntables in technical uh, online it, are the showcase versions, which are anything from 15 minutes to 20 minutes long. It was actually a full hour kind of um, club show as well. So I ended up doing a load of club bookings with it as well. How long did that take you to put together? Oh, uh, the Well, the first show was hardcore. Like uh, like I say, it was, yeah, I don't know, like at least six months working at it like a, a full-time job essentially uh it was it was hardcore I, I actually tried to apply for funding because i thought you know what I'm, if at all i that i can just get my head down and not have to tour and not have to do anything 
and sort of have some kind of research and development sort of fund or something and that'd be great but yeah I just sort of went into brick walls with that one so it was all kind of in between doing gigs and uh, and all that but yeah it, it took took a long time but one of the things I learned from turntables and technical even though I was really pleased with it artistically and it was kind of I wanted to put my own stamp on this audio-visual scratching thing because obviously Yoda had been doing that for a few years and uh, Mike Realm had been doing that uh, for a few years on the DVDJs. And what they did was awesome, but if I'm going to come out doing this, it needs to be a bit different. It needs to be my, you know, sort of uh, put my stamp on it really. So that's kind of why I really wanted to sort of delve into my skill set as a graphic designer uh, because that was my sort of USP in that field, if you will. Yeah. That said, I kind of learnt a lot about, like I say, what works with the crowd because what what I learnt was that even if I've laboured over this animation and this graphic for like a month solid for this like five-minute piece, they don't have to give a crap about this animation. They see, they see animations all the time. It doesn't matter what people react to. And it's the same with music. is a bit of familiarity, you know, so that's uh. kind of you know, a video clip from here, a, a cheeky graphic that references this pop culture reference over here and stuff like that. So yeah, I sort of brought that kind of learning into the subsequent sets that I did. So I did one called Big Fat 90s, which was like an ode to like MTV raps of the 90s with a few pop culture references in there. And then sort of a year or so later, it was um, the 40th anniversary of hip hop. So I kind of focused more on uh, hip hop in particular and uh, did it did like a sort of a potted chronology sort of obviously had to be quite select and you know sort of curate it sort of so it worked as a club set and whatnot but uh, that's yeah that's kind of what followed that but uh, yeah man but yeah still still doing it still uh, I'm going to update that one for the 50th uh, anniversary and do a few shows with that but uh, I've done a bunch of gigs uh, in recent years for the Hacienda brand well I say brand but you know the Hacienda nightclub yeah uh, warming up for Hacienda classical shows and all this lot. So I've done like AV sets for them, which are sort of themed around that kind of vibe and yeah, various kind of commissions that I've had over the years. So yeah, still still actively involved in the audiovisual stuff. Yeah, and what we've not touched on yet either is your own music as well and your stuff with Bocca 45. Yeah, um, so yeah, I kind of, I've always made music from getting two tape recorders and doing the old stop tapes and all that lot when I was a kid. And I probably got an Akai sampler about the same time as I got my first turntables, sort of 92-ish, on HP from Dawson's for for the next six years or whatever. So I've always wanted to make music. It's just always kind of been in the background, really. Yeah. I think the thing about beat making for me is I've always been cautious to put things out there and I've never been quite sure whether things are any good or not whereas with scratching it's quite tangible you know you can see somebody perform something and think can I do that yes I can do that tick you know so I must be at a certain level because I can do x y and z and obviously you know a final performance is very subjective still but skill set wise you can kind of fathom where you're at whereas with beat making uh, and music making generally it's so subjective you know so it took me a long time to figure out if I had the confidence to sh- like let anybody listen to my stuff to be honest with you and um, 
And it took me right till about 2015 to finally be like, you know what, all these sketches, all these millions of ideas I've had over the years, let's actually just knuckle down, concentrate, figure out what you want to do and finish stuff. You know, it's, it's that age old, you know, finish it, you know. So that's yeah. what I set about to do. And um, end result of that was uh, my album, uh, A Point of Contact, um, which came out in 2016. And we did a few shows with that. The live show version and was with Carl Sharrox, who I met through the pork scratching nights that I mentioned in, in the late yeah. 90s. So we've been mates ever since and made bits of music in between. So he sort of uh, contributed to a bunch of those tracks. So he was part of the live setup, as well as Christian Madden, who, um, who I've also known since I was about 12 or 13 as a little skate urchin knocking about Burnley. He was... <laughs> um, yeah, he, he knew all, all the skaters back then. Uh, anyway, he went on to be an amazing keys player who played on a bunch of the tracks on Point of Contact. And he was our keys player uh, up until the point that um, Liam Gallagher nicked him. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable, Liam. But yeah, obviously don't blame him for taking the gig. <laughs> so, but, uh, it's probably all right. Yeah, yeah, a bit better than uh, yeah playing to a few scratch nerds, but uh, <laughs> yeah, man. But uh, yeah, th those guys are, are wicked, and um, also Christian played a few keys for us on the stuff I, I did with Bocker Forty Five. So yeah, the project with me and Bocker, uh, we ended up calling Bocker Woody. Really creative, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we just really got on. It was like proper chance meeting. Um, we didn't know each other. We knew about a, a million people in common. But um, yeah. we just got chatting at, uh, at an airport in Romania. As you do. Yeah, as you do. Uh, I think we'd sniffed each other out as the only other English people in the airport and uh, got a chat and we're like, oh, those records. And he's like, yeah, those records. And I'm like, and I'm like, what, you know, what do you play? And he's like, you know, a bit of funk, a bit of hip hop. I'm like, oh, that's what I play. What's your name? <laughs> oh, Bucket 45. Oh, you know. And uh, yeah, sort of really sort of uh, randomly, even though we were booked by different promoters for different gigs, I think for the next two or three flights, our seats were actually together. Like our allotted seats were actually together for the next couple of flights. Oh, nice. Properly like weird. So it was a bit of a Twilight Zone thing really. And uh, so we were chatting for the next few hours, realized we really got on and because of the yeah, strangeness of that seating situation was like, we should do something, I think. <laughs> so the Bocker Woody kind of came from that, really. Um, that was that. So Brilliant. we put an EP out and we put an LP out. And uh, yeah, there's there's a few little sketches knocking about currently as well. So, Oh, nice. And you've got the label doing the scratch tools as well, haven't you? Yeah. So uh, once I'd figured out how to release wax and stuff uh, via the Point of Contact album, I'd always wanted to do scratch records anyway. I actually had one on the computer from like 2004 that I never put out because Serato came along and made that whole idea seem unviable at the time. Uh. So what I did with my first album, Point of Contact, was it was a double album gatefold. So one of the records was the album and the other record was essentially a battle tool using a lot of the musical samples that we had in the record so yeah from that it was kind of uh, a stepping stone to 
doing more scratch records. So yeah, from kind of more like library record sort of instrumental type of musically themed ones to sort of uh, more kind of traditional sample stuff. Um, yeah, I've been putting those out since since then really on yeah woodwork. I've done some collaborations with different DJs. So we've had DJ Robert Smith uh, drop two. Christian Yerstad, who's an amazing turntablist from Manchester, um, who, who's also a you know a wizard on the controller one. Check him out if you've not heard of him because he's like massively talented and uh, yeah, possibly not the most well known. So yeah, Christian Yerstad, I put out a great record uh, that he did called Tones, which is some yeah really awesome for any kind of pitching sort of stuff on the turntable just released two records by jfb so those are sort of flying out the door at the minute uh did a record with dj mike from italy really talented turntablist yeah the guests are kind of quite select and it's it's, it's mainly a sort of a um a springboard for for my stuff but I, I like to sort of work with my friends and people who i really dig as well so but it's an important part of being being that kind of pillar of the community as well. I think if you can if you can show it's not just about you, I think there's a huge benefit in that for everyone. Yeah, no, and I just love kind of um, whether it's my record or, or somebody else's. I love the sort of cottage industry sort of vibe. It's, it's basically me in this room, you know, doing everything, yeah. you know, sort of packing it up, chatting to shops, doing the orders, doing the graphic design for the most part. And, you know, it's great to make things that i'd want as a punter you know sort of make products that yeah are great to use great to listen to tools for the art form and and look good you know so the other thing that i'd like to talk to you about is you're living a pretty clean life these days and that i'm not saying that from a view of knowing how hedonistic you have or haven't ever been but you know you're vegan you're running marathons or you've just done your first marathon sorry you're really into your kind of mindfulness and your yoga has that has that been a journey or was it one catalyst where you were like, I know I'm getting older? Because this is something on the podcast I want to explore is age. Because we are, you know, we are all getting older all the time and you do have to take care of yourself and think about yourself in different ways. And even like DJing gives you a bit more backache than it used to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I was never too hedonistic, to be honest with you. I've never been a big drinker or anything like that. Um, so far as all the yeah the veganism and the mindfulness and uh, you know sort of giving up sort of drinking and stuff like that yeah I hate to use the word the word journey but yeah it's, it's it's been one um bit of a long story but essentially possibly related to djing around 2008 uh, i started getting ill quite often and um the first bout of it was actually on my return from a trip to uh, mexico whether it was food poisoning i did eat some sort of uh, pre-veganism i did eat some fish out there and i got really really quite ill i ended up in hospital uh, with it in subsequent years after that these bouts of illness kept coming back and they kept plying me with antibiotics and this that and the other but the doctors really didn't have any kind of answers for us they were sending us to every kind of test you can imagine and as you can imagine it was quite quite stressful so for years so so i was still tearing still doing all the stuff but ill quite a lot of the time and then sort of 2013, after nearly yeah four plus years of that, I was basically feeling ill all the time and they couldn't figure it out. And just to kind of try and alleviate the stress of that, 
essentially I sort of come across meditation. My, my cousin was a meditation teacher and it was actually, a, it was quite a random book by actually that sent me down that direction as well. Um, I bought a book by a guy called Alan Watts. I think I'd heard a speech by him uh-huh. and uh, he was one of the big sort of Western exponents of Eastern philosophy and stuff. And, you know, I sort of used to talk about Buddhism and whatnot in the sixties. Uh, this English guy who ended up teaching at Berkeley and stuff and uh, really interesting guy, great speaker. And I think I'd heard a, a speech by him and, uh, you know, it was pretty inspiring stuff, you know. And um, so I went and bought a book by him sort of before this kind of, before the illness kind of took took up a notch. And I only got to reading it once, like the, the shit had hit the fan really. And it was so, so useful. It sort of blew my mind really because a lot of these concepts were sort of initially hard to get your head around, but you're just like, man, this is just like literally common sense. Like, how, how have I never heard anybody speak about uh-huh. this stuff before? You know, he mentioned mentioned meditation and stuff. So, so I started meditating as a way to sort of alleviate from the stress of, of this, this sort of health situation that was going down. And through that, uh, through sort of getting to know the way sort of uh, my mind worked, you know, essentially you're sitting there looking at, at your mind, you know, and after a while, after sort of, regular practice you get more familiar with your thoughts and how they relate to bodily sensations and stuff like that and through this process whilst the doctors weren't able to tell me anything about what was going on with me I realized that actually uh, my thoughts had something had a part to play in these physical symptoms so I essentially self-diagnosed sort of anxiety you know um I was mm. And whether it was the physical illnesses that had um, triggered that, um, that that was why I was feeling ill, like most days, was the anxiety part of it. As it happened, the the sort of more physical things kind of um, dissipated and went. But uh, through kind of mindfulness and, you know, I ended up uh, sort of going down a route of sort of really researching a lot of these Western philosophies and got quite into Buddhism and stuff. So, yeah, sort of Buddhism and mindfulness have really helped kind of help me sort my head out, really. And, um, yeah, just been massively sort of uh, therapeutic in, in that respect. So the veganism part of it came through thinking about the backstory of a lot of things, you know, sort of more deeply kind of looking at, my ideas around ethics and also my ability to have agency in how I act and uh, the way I live my life. And, you know, so through that, I realized that, well, ethically, I should be vegan because, you know, I'd, you know, the sort of uh, animal suffering and whatnot. So uh, that's kind of where that came from and just following through with it. And then the same with the alcohol and stuff, I sort of realized that my optimal way to live was with clarity and with focus so the alcohol was another part of that really um if i could have a clear mind and yeah and do 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 stuff to sort of ensure that then yeah why do i need alcohol or anything like that sort of clouding my judgment on stuff so uh yeah knock that on the head and yeah i don't know it's uh been an interesting sort of rewarding sort of personal journey really but uh so yeah, <laughs> got into running a while ago. That was a lockdown thing. That was uh, 
yeah, no, it's just good to be active and just uh, good to sort of investigate these uh, new kind of uh, things. I don't know. Yeah, this is just too much in life to sort of uh, get into and enjoy, really. So, um, just before you go, there's just one more thing I'd like to ask, and um, apologies if this puts you on the spot, but what I was thinking would be nice to do is just ask any of the guests if they could hear anyone else on this podcast um, have do this sort of exploration of their DJ career and or everything afterwards. Is there anyone particular that springs to mind? Um, DJ XL from Wales would be great. Yeah, all right. He's, um, he won the 98, didn't he? Um, did he win the 98? I think he, 98 UK because it was the first video that I saw. Yeah, he was always in the top in the top lot but for me like yeah he's within yeah definitely top tier uk innovators on the turntables you know he essentially changed the course of scratching you know famously he showed cubert the twiddle and cubert went on to do the crab you know changed the course of the sound of scratching and he's from yeah. wales do you know what i mean um every time i i saw him in a DMC competition, I was blown away with the creativity. Really inspirational. Uh, and, you know, sort of uh, people need to know more about him. So, yeah, that'd be a great one. Definitely. Well, I mean, it's been amazing to share all that with you. And I think this is going to turn out a long edit, but I think that there's a load of fascinating stuff in here about about your approaches to all sorts of stuff in life, I think, about your approaches to creativity, longevity. Um introspection i think it's a big thing i think this is, i think that's why this is a long one because there's a lot of introspection in it as well as just a lot of stuff that you've done uh, so i just want to really thank you for your time today and the other day <laughs> and um, and yeah yeah it's been a really really interesting conversation and i'll speak to you soon cheers dude thanks for listening to the once a dj podcast if you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.